like you said before, you were like someone who went to such lengths because it's almost like you didn't care whether you lived or died. Being so close to whether it's the death of other people through the tsunami or like death yourself from illness and stuff like that. Like, what did you end up taking away from that when you came back here? I mean, you know, there's there's something inside of you when you go through that kind of stuff. Uh, I definitely dealt with like a lot of post-traumatic stress type of stuff after that for a while and and things like that. But um, it gives you it gives you a real perspective on life. And if you're going to continue to survive events like that, even just emotionally, forget about the physical aspect of being all, you know, just skinny and stuff, but just emotionally survive. You have to find the good things in life. And I think there's there's something, whether it's you, Joe, or you, Melissa, or me, or any person on the planet, any species of reptile we work with, any kind of thing we can take on our endeavor, there's a good and bad side to it. And I just choose since that time to look and find the good in, in people and things and focus on developing that. Um, because it, at the end of it, we all die and just return to dust from which we came. Right. And, uh, and whatever we did in our lives is the only thing that lives on. So I, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but you know, you gotta try to have some kind of a legacy during that point. And I think every one of us affects the people that we're around negatively or positively. You can feel it when you step into somebody's presence, there's a change of atmosphere. If they're a really positive person or a really horrible person. You know, and so it's, it's kind of like, what kind of impact are you going to have on the world? And I don't know why I wake up every day, but every day that I wake up, I'm like, all right, let's figure out why I'm here today and see what good I can do that day, you know, and that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what I, my, I took away from it. I don't well, know why if, Melissa just ran away. I think I just scared her see, off. could see the video, you're the first one to ever make Melissa cry on this. <laughs> I'm sorry, Melissa. <laughs> Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Got snakes playing around in the background. I over know. Here. I like it. And good. our reflection is um, like bouncing off That's one of the cages, and it's cool. Yeah, it's I really can see myself in the Basically corner. Basically, Inception. Yes. Okay. We are live. Go for it, Joe. Holy shit! Welcome to number sixty-five of From the Ground Up. Um, first of all, I'd like to say. That it doesn't feel like we've done 65 episodes. I was about to say, definitely didn't know it was 65, so that's great. But thank you so much that people care to listen to us. Okay. And we've gone this long. And um, I want to also thank Melissa and Tony. Um, Tony, Jerome. of course, from Selective Scales, who we had on the podcast before. But they hosted uh, Southern Carpet Fest. And we had a great time, saw a lot of people, you know, people like Howard Redding, who was on a couple of weeks ago, people like Ian Bissell, who was on a few months ago, and just people... Um, More local that we, people who we also... Yeah, like local like, people that we hang out with all the time, but also people who came from Howard from Maryland, Ian from Florida, and just uh, people who gather around to hang out and talk about snakes. Yeah, and eat good queso. 
Yeah. So thank you for everyone who helped out or that um, bid on the auction and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it was yeah. a great time. Ooh, we won something on the auction. We did, yeah. We bid on Owen. How do you pronounce his last name? <laughs> McIntyre. Oh, sorry. Owen McIntyre's, um, he put a $200 voucher up and we got it. So I can expand my love for uh, some king snakes right now. I should have made you try to pronounce his last name. I thought it was McIntyre, but then I was like thinking, it's like, in, it's a weird McIntyre. Yeah, that's how you usually spell it, I think. I don't know. But, um, there but are... yeah, I'm excited to get more uh, king snakes in our collection, and he has some really pretty ones. One's available. Don't tell me that. I'll wait till <laughs> well, next we'll, year we'll if have I to have him. to. Is there an expiration on these vouchers? I don't know. You have to ask him. But um, <laughs> PortCityPythons.com, we have some t-shirts for sale. Um, helps us support the podcast, host the podcast, all that stuff. And um, Amazon links are in the descriptions of the podcast as well as the YouTube videos. All you do is follow the links. Shop as you usually would. Um, is there anything else we needed to say before that? Uh-uh. All right. So today we have on Garrett Hartle of Reach Out Reptiles. And Garrett works with locality um, and dwarf species of retics. Um, hopefully I didn't butcher that. Um, Garrett. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, give me give me a better intro for yourself there. Um, I think I might be the only person that full time works with nothing but dwarf and super dwarf retics. And uh, yeah, um, I mean, dwarf and super dwarfs are locality retics. The the terms are not. You know, a lot of people think dwarf or super dwarf is a genetic trait, like it is. You know, like you have dwarfism in humans. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. These are insular forms from little islands. So you have to selectively, we use those to selectively breed for size. So are they subspecies or are they? They are. Yeah, they've actually recently been reclassified as their own subspecies, Python reticulatus, well, Malaya Python reticulatus jampianus. Um, And so we cross those into the mainland stuff to get the morphs. And it's kind of cool because, um, you know, dwarf or super dwarf or, you know, kind of silly terms like i said marketing terms it's it's really based on which islands they come from and what kind of breedings you do but i can get you a uh a retic that's anything from the size of a little bit bigger than a corn snake all the way up so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the value of them it's pretty neat a retic for everybody you know well now you do something that i think we all strive for in the reptile community is you do it full time so yeah Uh, I kind of want to go back on the origin of that. And first of all, Garrett, where'd you grow up? (laughs) Let's go back even further. Go back. Go back to the beginning. Yeah. Well, um, that's kind of a loaded question. I was a bit of a nomad for a while. I mean, I was born in Pittsburgh, which is where I live now and where Reach Out Reptiles is based. But, um, and I ended up buying my... Uh, a, a house that my grandfather built in 1950. It's the house my dad grew up in. So my kids now are fourth generation in this place. Wow. So that's kind of fun. But uh, I actually moved away from Pittsburgh when I was five. And then I lived in several different states. You know, um, I ended up landing in Southern California 
when I was, uh, I think, nine years old or something. And uh, did most of my growing up there from nine to 18. And then from 18, it was just, you know, no holds barred. After that, live wherever I want. So now, Southern yeah. California is known specifically for its herps and herp community. So, were you into reptiles growing up? I was. I don't know that I was part of any real reptile community back then. Um, you know, a lot of people just thought I was the weird one or whatever, and I was kind of out in the high desert out there. So, um, so I ended up, you know, playing with a lot of like rattlesnakes and things like that. And I was always the guy to like relocate those for everyone so they wouldn't get killed. And so I got a lot of my early on uh, experience with that. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I unfortunately I did not have other than I used to have a really cool and maybe it's just my old memory going back. But they had a really cool reptile show in San Diego called IRBA. I think it was International Reptile Breeders Association. And it was legit. It was old school. There was like tons of different species. But there used to be a lot of breeders that were highly specialized in what they do. And a lot of the guys that are, are still around were the guys back then, but it seems like they kind of, a lot of them have gotten away from their roots and too many of them are doing ball pythons, I think these days and stuff like that. But uh, back in the day, ball pythons were like, there really weren't any ball pythons available whenever I was doing it. There were no morphs back then or anything. And so um, that wasn't really a thing. So everyone just kind of kept whatever they thought was cool. Right. Yeah. I think back Probably. I don't know what year that is. I don't want to guess. And <laughs> early 90s, early 90s. There you go. So it was probably like uh, Bob Applegate and all that influence, the air, the Mountain King snakes. The Bob cow, Applegate you know. was like my childhood hero. He used to tell me when I was 11, he's like, come over, we'll drink beer and talk about what? reptiles. It'll be awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think he knew I was 11, but... <laughs> Yeah, my, my whole experience with the reptile community back then was just literally sending everybody in the backs of the classified sections in the magazines, those SASEs, mm-hmm. the self-addressed stamped envelopes. I don't know if you guys even know what those are, but kind that's how of. we used to get availability <sighs> lists. You would send a letter with a letter inside it addressed to yourself, and they would stuff it with their availability list and send it back. And if they were really cool, like Bob Applegate and some of these other guys, they would have pictures in there and stuff. That sounds expensive. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was free for me, other than the postage, or you know, sometimes it would charge like two fifty or whatever. But I had heard, yes, it was so exciting, charging you know two bucks or something just in the to envelope, send it? just to send Damn. it, so that they yeah, knew whatever you were the like serious or you know the print cost to cover it. It was so cool though. I wish people still did that because they were like collectibles, and as a kid, you know. I would just eat that stuff up, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would love to see someone who has, you know, all the classic like Glaze Herbs, Tom Crutchfield, um, you know, the bells and like all all the little like postcards or whatever the hell they were using back then. I'm sure there's people that do. I had them all. I wish I'd have kept them all, but I've moved too many times. I don't know where anything is anymore, but yeah. Yeah. It's like little pieces of herp history. And that was really like, when this all got started i mean there was really only that generation that kind of kicked this up and until now there's people like you who can breed like a very very specific niche of animal and make a living off of it which is awesome i think i mean i i really i really think it's cool in some ways i miss the old days but in other ways uh back then we were still kind of 
rolling off the idea that reptiles were disposable pets. You know, like you you would buy a $25 green iguana and nobody would spend $500 that's needed to set one up because it's a $25 iguana. And they'd be like, nah, I'll just keep it in my bedroom and whatever and see if it lives and then you'd replace it. And Which so is I still don't something. It's still something. It, still I don't, yeah, I don't know if that, I don't think that's something that's totally gone, unfortunately. Yeah, well, but I mean, back in those days, it was a lot more prevalent. I remember ordering corn snakes through the mail that would come in an envelope, you know, and they would put them in like a, <laughs> yeah, like a heavy duty toilet paper tube, basically with the ends capped off in an envelope and they would ship it and stuff like that. So it was just, it was just a different world, you know, it was, it was kind of a wild, wild west. And I know that Western Pennsylvania where I live is a lot like that because there are no, excuse me, <laughs> snakes falling around in the background here. Um, in Western Pennsylvania, there's no exotic laws governing reptiles, so kind of anything goes. You can go to the local reptile show and buy a Nile crocodile if you want or whatever. And on one hand, that's really cool. On the other hand, you know, the sellers have got to be on their game to make sure that they're doing right by what, you know, what's right by the animal. I, I'm all for somebody being able to have a Nile crocodile if they're capable of that, but that's a freaking Nile crocodile. I mean, that takes a lot. <laughs> You know, and I don't know if the re- the local show here in Pittsburgh supports the right uh, kind of crowd to do that or not, especially at lower prices. You know, when you can buy incredible animals for less than five hundred bucks, you know, it's right. uh, it's not a good recipe for the animals. So I don't really miss that part of it. But there was a whole wild world of discovery back then that was mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Yeah, so. we've we've certainly made a shift from imports to now everyone's breeding <clears throat> for the most even in my own collection with the locality retics you know um <clears throat> i'm trying to move away from wild caught animals as much as i can i I've, I've bred them i've i've kept those original stock animals and now most of them are just being retired to live out their lives and and it's really those f1 f2 you know, but all no inbreeding going on, all still wild caught genetics. Those are the animals that are now kind of the foundation of my collection. And that's what's really exciting for me because you still have all those rich genetics, but it's an animal that its parents obviously did well enough in captivity to reproduce. And it has that genetic predisposition to do the same thing. And it's been with me its whole life. So it's just mm-hmm. kind of a joy to keep. I, I really don't miss a lot of my imported pets and wild caught stuff growing up not that there's anything like wrong with that but i think if if you're supplying a pet trade with those animals the goal has to be to get those animals established in captivity as quickly as possible for the sake of the animals and the environment and everything else you know absolutely and now that we're we're delving into it um anyway so we might as well the chat's going crazy asking about um basically the stigmas on those localities and the dwarf retics and that they are a little bit more uppity and stuff like that. So is there a difference between some of these multiple um, generation captive born animals? Um, well, first of all, I find it funny, almost hypocritical that super dwarf reticulated pythons have, I, I can't see the chat, but I, I'm sure what they're asking is they're flighty, they're bitey, you know, they push those kinds of things. Um, 
or that they're very cage defensive. And that's the reputation that all retics used to have when I was a kid. If it's a retic, it's like you're buying a giant, flighty, bitey, cage defensive animal. And because everything was captive or wild caught back then. And really, just as soon as you get a captive bred baby and you grow it up yourself, if you half know what you're doing and you actually interact with your animals, that stuff goes away. Um, so I do find it funny that retic breeders that now the reputation for retics is these calm, tame puppy dogs of giant snakes, you know, the gentle giants, uh, still say that super dwarfs are like that. And I think what it is, is that super dwarfs are just, they're freaking hard to breed, you know, and they breed slowly and they don't produce a lot of numbers. And so probably, I don't know, I would say at least 25% of the super dwarf population out there, pure super dwarfs is wild caught animals and that's where you're getting that reputation from whereas you know i mean i've got four kids my oldest is a, is is four years old or i'm sorry is seven years old and um they all play with all the retics on a daily basis and have fun with them and there's no problems whatsoever they're different than the big ones they act different they're different mm-hmm. subspecies and they have different temper you know uh personalities but the the temperament on them is great so and I had heard from someone, I don't know how true it is because I'm not really involved in the uh, large constrictor community that much, but uh, have they stopped importing reticulated pythons? Yeah, three years ago, they completely shut down. For, so if you're in the United States, you cannot import anything anymore. So, so that was super in the Lacey Act that wasn't just domestic, it covered international trade? It mostly covered international trade. Yeah, it's the same law that uh, prohibited the state-to-state uh, transport and basically what they did with US ARC was redefine the way that the main law was set up to where to say okay yes it does prohibit importation but it does not prohibit you know interstate within the continental 40 you know 48 states it does not prohibit any shipping so um so that's good because it opens it up within our borders. But what it means is there are no longer any possible ways to get new pure locality blood. And unfortunately, the uh, the eye towards locality retics was either it's extremely small niche over the course of time. And only since Uncle Sam has told us we can't have them, does anybody, everybody want them now? <laughs> but there's almost like some of this stuff, we're scraping together things to just try to reproduce them in captivity. Um, and if, if we don't, they're going to go extinct. And so dwarfs and super dwarfs are, are in that category because they all come from this group of island within the Flores Sea. Um, there's a bunch of islands down there that have these insular forms of smaller growing retics. And most of what we have in the United States has been crossed into morphs to make morphs smaller. They're no longer pure. You can always take a pure locality animal and breed it to a morph, but you can't take two crossed animals and ever make them pure again. So right. if someone doesn't breed those, those pure locality animals, they're gone forever. You want to ask Paris's question? Yeah. So from the chat, um, Paris asked if a uh, I don't know how to pronounce Kalatoa retic is a good. good job. Is a good first retic to keep? Uh, I would, you know, so Kalatoa is one of the islands from that Flores Sea. It is the most commonly available 
super dwarf or the really small breed ticks. Males are just a little bit bigger than like a rat snake or maybe the size of a rat snake. And the females might be the size of maybe a jungle carpet python or something for comparison. Um, they, I would say, yeah, they're a good first retic. Are they a good first snake? No. So he has uh, a corn snake and a boa right now. I, I mean, if, if he does his homework and he studies, I mean, uh, jump on Reach Out Reptiles YouTube channel. I put a lot of educational content up there. It's a great place to learn about these guys. Um, you know, and, and if they really apply themselves, um, then uh, I'm sorry. Who did you say that it was? What Paris. was the name? This is yeah, Paris. Paris. I don't know if that's a. I guess him. that could be a guy or him. But <laughs> him. Okay, Paris. Sorry, man. Um, yeah, if he if he jumps on and studies and applies himself, yeah, he could get a Kalatoa. But you have to realize as a pure locality animal right now that's rarely produced and in high demand, you're going to pay a premium price tag for that animal. I think it's absolutely worth it because even with just two animals, you can become part of the foundation of a captive population here in the United States. So it's a worthwhile investment. But it's well, funny. I'm not even sure oh, well, I was about to say funny um, thing. if it's more or less. But funny thing is he lives in England. Right, so, so it's not even it's more or less important. It may even be more important. Over there. there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, nevertheless, I mean, I would definitely encourage uh, captive bred, going captive bred with those. Um, if you're careful with the size of the parents and stuff, you can get a cross animal, and it's going to be a lot cheaper for you. Um, in the UK, uh, their prices somewhat reflect ours. I do think the pure stuff is more expensive here now, but the crosses are fairly similarly priced. So if he was to get like a Kalatoa tiger or, or whatever, if he's in the UK, he needs to go to uh, UK exotics. That's Sue Robertson or Michael Andrews. Um, those are kind of the super dwarf specialists over there. They do a great job. So, Gotcha. So obviously you're really um, knowledgeable on Indonesia and all those little islands. So what first got you into um, Indo as like a place itself and then also the retics. Oh, well, it's kind of twofold. I mean, obviously all the cool pet animals in the pet trade are from Indonesia. Uh, they just have historically done mass exports to the United States with all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's, and it's really exotic stuff. It's, you know, the stuff that lives in Indo is like nothing like what we have here in the United States. So, um, so there was always that, you know, places like epic places like the Komodo dragons, obviously the reticulated pythons, there's King Cobras out mm -hmm. there, you know, there's just everything, like every kind of coolest snake on the planet or coolest lizard on the planet seems to live in Indonesia somewhere. Um, but I think what really sealed my fate was uh, growing up in Southern California, um, I was part of a high school group that was led by this, he was a, a German by, you know, descent, but born and raised to missionary parents in Indonesia. Whoa. So he spoke all the local languages. He was like a little village boy in a six foot, four inch, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed body. Um, 
And the guy was just chock full of stories that captivate a young man's mind. And, and so it just became like the place of all places to go for me. And, and so, you know, I, I mean, we can get into how I ended up moving out there at one point, but it, it was can. right in Let's line. Let's do with it. That. Let's do it. Let's get into that. Yeah. Well, this is a little <laughs> bit later in history, but after my, my, uh, year and a half long road trip in the back of a truck. Well, yeah. Let's you know, start there. Yeah. <laughs> So you graduated high school. When do you start living out of a truck? Or, uh, pretty shortly after. Um, actually, the reptile stuff goes way back before graduation in high school. Um, my parents were the kind of parents that were like, their philosophy was, I'm going to give my kids as much responsibility as they can handle and then rein them in as they screw up. And so not to say I didn't screw up. I think I would consider my childhood a major screw up. But I never broke any rules. So traditionally, like on paper, I was good. But I was the kind of guy that like they had to make new laws because of the activities that I was doing to say like, <laughs> I don't know why anyone would ever do that. But so, like when you see those random laws, like don't like, tie a giraffe to a lamppost after someone midnight. Someone did that. Yeah. I was the guy that made that law. You know what I mean? So um, that made that law necessary, I should say. So uh, I... Um, from a pretty young age, I started hitchhiking into Mexico, like 13, 14. I couldn't drive yet. What? Um, yeah, and I started spending my uh, weekends down there with unscrupulous types of people. Did that, um, was that not extremely dangerous? Or Yeah. Yeah, was but it I a mean, casual thing? But my parents people don't of your know skin why. color I mean, did? Like today, I mean, today, I think going across the border to Mexico is like kind of a bad thing or whatever, but... Back then, it wasn't really a big deal. Like, you didn't need a passport. If you came back across the border and you were white and you spoke English like I do, they would let you in. You know what I mean? They didn't care. So I would go with these guys that just like to go out to the desert and get drunk and all this kind of stuff. And I would leave them and go out herping all the time. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but apparently it's illegal to bring animals from Mexico to California. Generally yeah, frowned upon. I I didn't know that, but like, I mean, my, my thing as a kid was I was in the backyard catching whatever I could and just think it was cool. And I would take pictures of it and talk to people about it as much as I could. So when I started going to Mexico, I'd be like, wow, check out this cool lizard. I pick it up. You know what I mean? I learned all my little catch techniques and stuff for lizards and snakes. And I started to find that as I got back into America, people were willing to pay me for these animals. Very strange. It's like, wow, how come no one else has these? You know, well, well, just because they're illegal, you know. Yeah, I think the border <laughs> was shut down like in the seventies or something like that. And here I am in the nineties, like carrying crazy stuff across the border and selling them. Um, so I accidentally made some money doing that, um, and I didn't know it was such a bad thing. But one of the things that I did when I was fourteen, I took that chunk of change that I had. And I invested it into, I decided to try to do reptiles as a living. Um, and I, I was like, well, I'm 14. So I got four years before I'm out of the house. I better figure this out. So I, I invested some money pretty heavily. And I, I got a colony of about, I think, 200 leopard geckos at the time. And around that time, uh, the, the blizzard lizards had just hit the scene. I remember buying my first male blizzard lizard. I think it was $1,500. Oh, I my God. 14 years old. Of course, I had wads of cash under my uh, mattress that my mom didn't know about or whatever. So I just used that. Um, 
And I started breeding these things and, and I had a whole rack system going and the Trempers were awesome back in the day, you know, helping me figure all that kind of stuff out. And then Jay down at Prehistoric Pets um, was kind of, you know, I would learn things in reading in between the lines from him. We didn't have the internet back then, you know, um, but I would just kind of pick things up and trial and error. And I, I ended up being pretty successful with leopard geckos to the point where by the time I was 16, I was able to take the money that I'd made breeding reptiles from 14 to 16 and buy my first vehicle cash off the lot. How did and, your uh, peer, how did your parents feel about I was about, about to say, you got some very, very uh, open and I mean, they were, they were all right. We had like a big ranch house and it, and it was like spread out. And I was kind of, my room, I actually took, originally when they bought the house, it was supposed to have like an eight-car garage. And so I just split it in half, and I made my room slash reptile room in there. And that's where I lived. And they were like, oh, that's cool. He gives his sisters the other room, so we don't really care what he does down there. And I wasn't allowed to keep snakes when I was little because my mom was terrified of them. But she basically, her rule was, I don't care what you do inside your room, but when it starts to affect us outside the room, we got a problem. So, uh, I, I just, I mean, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reptiles stashed in my room of all kinds, venomous, non-venomous, all, <laughs> obviously she wasn't allowed to know about the venomous stuff. So I had to keep that hidden. And when it got to the point where I was sleeping on the living room couch, cause there was no bed, I moved my bed out at one point. <laughs> she was like, all right, this is crossing that line into affecting us now. So I, I remember screwing a couple bicycle hooks in, in the corners of the room and putting a hammock in there that I could fold up during the day. And that was like the only open space in my bedroom. So yeah, I, I just ran all that kind of stuff and and did whatever I did. And I was able to mail order most of my supplies so my mom didn't care. And and I, I was an avid bicycle rider back then. So I just, I got, I got a job at Petco at 15, lied about my age. It was 17 miles away because I lived out in the middle of nowhere. But I rode my bike uh, to work, and and I was the manager of the reptile department there, and so I was able to kind of like, you know, like they let me uh, if I had, had to order crickets, I would order them at cost through the Petco thing, so that made it more feasible. And and I mean, yeah, does any mom care if their son makes enough money to buy his first car cash and doesn't ask right. her for any? I mean, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, that part now, but the the going the, to Mexico, the, pre- the previous. <laughs> Part. I don't think she. I don't think she usually knew I was going to Mexico. I was like, I'm going to my friend's house for the weekend. She just didn't know my friend was, you know, Jorge, south of the border or whatever. So, you know. that's amazing. So, so it. Oh, uh, what do you want to say? Well, mine's not really a question, really, but yeah. it's safe to say that if you hadn't spent that time living in Southern California your life wouldn't be where you are today. Like if you had stayed in. I mean, I think that's true of anything. I, I, I. I would have done something. I mean, before I lived in California, like from, I think maybe seven and eight years old, I lived in Minnesota and I remember running away from home for a week okay, at a time. Okay, never mind. You would have, so okay. I, so it just, didn't matter where you lived. You would have found out. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have been importing Canadian reptiles illegally, I guess. <laughs> crossing over. They just crossing. have a less variety up there. <laughs> Whichever border you could find, you'd be crossing. Yeah, yeah. It's a long bike ride at the Canadian border from where I live. <laughs> Could have made it happen. I'd have been dealing timber wolves. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, there's obviously two things that need to come together to be successful in the reptile business and do it full time. I know what and, you're going to say. Um, like, 
the business side and the yeah, snake yeah. side. But I mean, were you just naturally entrepreneurial at the same time as you were like a reptile obviously, guy? Because obviously, he built his bed out like, of bike knows? stuff. Like this man is little MacGyver. But what kid wants to sell? Like thinks about it that way. Yeah, you know, I I'm not sure where that came from. I I. I mean, my thing is in my family. So like my dad, he's a, he's an animation producer. He's actually does the Bugs Bunny show right now. He's a director for Warner brothers. Um, so I, I come from a long line of adventurers. Like, I mean, uh, Daniel Boone is just a couple generations back in my family and stuff like that. So it's just kind of like adventurers and storytellers. And I really just think that bodes well for sales because you're like, hey, here I am having so much fun. Look how cool this is. And everyone's like, I need to have fun, too. I guess I should buy whatever you have, you know, and it just kind of happens that way, you know. Um, So I I think it was about that. I mean, I remember back then so many of my customers being blown away that at the age of 14 or 15, I could compete with top breeders in the leopard gecko realm and and I had no overhead because I don't pay my own electricity. I don't have to pay taxes on it because I'm under 18. I, you know, so I, I, I was just like, well, what's your cheapest price? I'll beat it and give them to you. And they loved it. And I, I was always very good with customer service, make sure my animals were top notch because they were the world to me. Um, and, you know, if I had a ditch school to do it, I had a ditch school to do it. And I, I value education. But at the same time, I was like, this is a real education. I'm right. doing, doing business over here. That's what we go to school to learn anyway, right? So... Um, yeah, the reptile side of it was, was pretty crazy. That was a lot of upkeep as a kid and I will never do it again because I think at that age I didn't have to sleep. Um, so I just took care of reptiles all night and did my school during the day and my work, uh, did like a night shift at the, I would always close at the Petco. So I get off of school at whatever time you get off, what three thirty or something and bike over to Petco and close up at 11 and ride my bike back until one in the morning and then feed all feed and clean all my reptiles and get up for zero period. Cause I had a, um, acting class, you know, first thing in the morning, the next day. Um, that is a so it was just, I, I could never do it now. I could never do it now. And I certainly learned a lesson about overextending myself at the time, but I had, for me, I just, I had to learn that the, the hard way I, I've always been the kind of guy I think just needs to push until I find my limits, you know, rather than having someone tell me what people can and cannot do. Right. So what transitioned you you out of leopard geckos? Mm, I never really liked leopard geckos. I mean, they're cute. (laughs) I did enjoy petting the bottoms of their tails, but that was about it. I love the bottoms of the leopard geckos. So they were just money makers. They were my money makers. And in the meantime, I had all these like Amazonian tree frogs. Um, by that time, I was importing reptiles from South America a lot. And um, and so I had all these like weird things that nobody had ever seen, especially boas. I loved boas back then. Um, but also frogs. And then I, I was able to sneak in a few venomous things here and there, like eyelash vipers. I started with pretty young. Um, and that was a good old time. But I always wanted, they always had uh, Bushmasters. I was always asking for Bushmasters and nobody could get them for me. And I was always bummed about that. So one of these days, I'll get myself some nice blackhead Bushmasters and do it upright. But uh, that's kind of one of those childhood things that never happened. Um, But I will tell you what it is. I had a lot of reptiles. And finally, after years of begging my mom, and obviously her seeing that I'm capable of making real money with reptiles, 
she did want to support me in whatever weirdness I was into, you know, thank the Lord. But, uh, cause she thought it was just insane. But, um, but I, I begged her for, I remember when I turned 16, I was like, I will give you, I will trade you every Christmas and birthday present for the rest of my life living with you for a snake and you don't have to buy it. I'll pay for it with my own money. You know what I mean? I just, I want to have a snake. Now, by this time, I was actually keeping and breeding rattlesnakes in my bedroom, but she didn't know that. But I wanted a jungle carpet python. Oh. Like there was no, and and I actually remember it was it was really the tiger tiger coastals that hooked me. But uh, from the reptiles magazines ads that I've seen, I was talking to Eric and Owen about that on their show. But um, but I, I saw this real nice jungle, and I just wanted it in the worst way, and. Um, I remember negotiating with her at 16. One of my neighbors, alligators are illegal in California, but one of my neighbors was this lawyer guy who had permits for caimans and, and ended up like sneaking in an American alligator on that permit. And he kept it in this horse stall. And then he got a divorce and he needed to get rid of it. And it was about six feet long. And I told her, your choice, mom, for my birthday, I want either that alligator or this baby jungle carpet python that's totally harmless i promise and she said okay you can have the alligator what <laughs> yeah so i i got a six foot alligator but i i didn't stop i kept working her and a couple months later i was able to get that jungle carpet python and i swear she that poor woman had nightmares for every night for six months after that um that i had the jungle carpet but shortly after i actually got my first reticulated python which was a Jampea. And at the time, that was like the cool new thing. Like, check these out. They're dwarf retics. They stay small. Bob Clark had brought some in. He bred them to albinos and bred them back and made the first albino jamps. And that was it. I mean, I was like, this is the snake to end all snakes. So that's um, almost 20 years ago. I got my first dwarf retic. And, and once you have a dwarf retic or a super dwarf retic or even a mainland for that matter, I mean, they're just such incredible snakes. I mean, I've kept so many species over the years, but there's something that is so interactive about a reticulated python. Like you just don't get in reptiles. It's almost like having a dog, you know, where they like you and they hate American this other alligator <laughs> or six foot American. Well, that one hated me. He was very interactive, but not in a positive way. <laughs> I've got a lot of scars from that guy learning how to handle crocodilians as a kid, having a six foot alligator that was just absolutely mean. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I don't know. Retics are just, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think anybody listening that's had a retic, will know what I'm saying. It's like once you've gone retic, it's really hard to go back. They're just they just offer so much in he terms of You would know of... about not going back. What? Yeah. Never I don't mind. Know what you're talking about whatever. Okay, never mind. I <laughs> thought that's a joke everyone would get, but never mind. No, not me. Uh <laughs> I what? get it. I get it. But it's only because we're on video chat. If I was only listening to this, I wouldn't understand. I can't believe he doesn't get it. I don't it. see color. Oh, Good for oh, you. Okay. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, so how did you... Okay, so how do you have all these animals and then live in a truck? Yeah, like what did you do with like, all of what them? Was, what happened? Oh, interesting. Interesting events? story. 
Um, well, I moved out of my parents' house pretty much the day I turned 18. I mean, I, I turned 18 in May is my birthday. And then, oh, uh, happy birthday month. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just turned 35. So I'm way over the hill now. But, um, I, uh, I, I turned 18 and then I graduated high school immediately thereafter. And what I did was I consolidated all my reptiles. So I took like you know, the hundreds and hundreds that I had and I exchanged them for like 12 super high end animals. Um, and then I took those animals with me and I moved to this campground in the mountains in California up where the bighorn sheep are and everything like that. And I had a blast up there. That's where I got into archery. We were talking a little before we went live and everything like that. Um, and it was like a it was like a summer camp, but I was I was uh, full time staff there, and I lived in like a twelve foot little tr- like a teardrop trailer almost, with all these crazy animals. Some of them were deadly and stuff, but you know, um, it was it was a blast. I got to grow up with like bears in my backyard, and it was in the national forest. So, you know, I just had all of you know the glorious creation to my to myself, and uh, played around up there. But after a couple of years of that, um, I had a house fire um, I, that wasn't in the trailer. The first year and a half I was there, I was in a trailer, and then I, I moved out shortly. I think I was like 19 or something uh, still when I, I got moved into a house with a couple other guys, and someone else saw, saw, set fire to the house and killed everything, burned everything to the ground. All I had was a truck I used to have. It was my same truck that I bought whenever I was 16. It was a Toyota pickup with a camper shell on it. And literally everything else I owned burned and I had nothing. So I was like, I guess I'm going in the truck. So I just decided to go ahead and make a fresh start. And I hit the road, um, with a truck and a a wad of cash. And I remember one of my best friends back then was like, Garrett, I just don't see you without any animals. And I was like, Nope, I'm not even going to keep any animals for a while. Um, and uh, I actually had horses back then too. I sold the horses to get some of the money for the road trip. But um, I so I, I did all that. And one of my buddies bought me two mice, a male and a female, in a bird cage, like those old school wire bird cages <laughs> that hang. So I hung that in my passenger side next to me in the truck. And those were the, the mice's name were Azusa and Sister Cat. And um, were they just to, like those... ward off any possible females from going near your truck? Or... <laughs> yeah, you know what is so weird? I did not have problems meeting women growing up, like girls. Like, Ew. actually, well, maybe the problem was I. So my problem was I was always dating older women. Like, I mean, like ten years older than me was the youngest I ever dated when I was a teenager, and that was kind of weird. But I think it was because I was already in the working world and doing the entrepreneurial thing, and. Nobody knew my age anyway. The way I look now at 35, if you look at my high school pictures, I look the same. You know, like I, I, I hit puberty, I changed, and then I just kind of stopped. But um, hopefully that holds up. We'll see what happens. I have a few more gray hairs and I'll put on a few extra pounds. But other than that, um, I looked old when I was young, in other words. So nobody knew. So you have the, bir- or the birdcage mice. The birdcage mice, and I, they would breed regularly as I went across the country. Oh, okay. So I'd stop at the park and feed the pinkies off the ducks and stuff like that. And <laughs> you know, no just lived in my truck. And I, I, I drove around for about, I think it was like six months until I ran out of money. And I'd gone back and forth across the country a couple times. And then whatever town I was at, I think the first time I ran out of money, I was in somewhere in Indiana. 
And uh, I, I just went to like a local church. It was a Sunday. I went to church service and everyone's like, hey, stranger. It was like 20 people church, you know, where are you from? And I was like, I don't know, but I don't have any money and I could use a job. I, I'm strong. Anyone got any work for me? And I would wear, I, you know, some old guy paid me to like, you know, uh, buck hay at his feed station or something. So I, I bucked hay and stacked hay bales for a few weeks and I'd get some money in my little cigar box and hit the road again until I ran out. I, I did that for a year and a half. I would just run out wherever I ran out and, and I would go to a church because people are generous at churches and uh, they'd give me a job and I'd sleep in my truck and work for them and eat out of cans. And I, I, I did that for a year and a half. It was probably cool. like around, well, probably a little bit before when the book came out, but have you read Into the Wild? No, I have basically a story of someone who did exactly that, but yeah. then he dies in the Alaskan wilderness. But then, you know, but you turned that, out a little that, better than that. Yeah, well, I didn't make it to Alaska. That was on the plans, but I never, never got up there. Actually, what happened was I, I totaled my truck, and I tried to move to Jamaica. We'll make a long story short, and I made it to Jamaica, but I got deported within like two hours. <laughs> And I actually had, they sent me to Memphis, but I didn't know anyone in Memphis. Memphis. So I actually Why did they snuck send you on, there? Because uh, it, it was just wherever the next the plane, plane out of going. Jamaica to the U.S. was going. And, oh, man, I will not recount what happened to me at Customs on the way back in. That was not a pleasant experience. Don't mouth off to the Customs. Uh, the customs oh, they're agent. not messing but, around. Mm-mm. No, I was having a bad day, and they did not care. So they searched me for drugs every which way they could, and turned me loose in the airport and I snuck on planes to get back to Pittsburgh where I had some family. Um, and then from there, remember the guy I told you about that was like the, the group leader that was from Indonesia. Right. I, I, I was like, okay, well I had all these cool reptiles. My house burned down. They all died. I had a truck. I totaled it. They all died. By the way, it wasn't me that totaled it. I invited a buddy to come on the road trip with me for like a month and he totaled it. Thanks, Nick. You know, but at any rate, so that ended that chapter of my life. And just very provincially, um, this Indonesian guy was like, hey, um, there's this German family. They got a kid. He's moving to Indonesia, but he's going to attend this international school. He doesn't speak any English. All they speak, the whole family, all they speak is German and Indonesian. And they need somebody to help the kid with their homework. But it, you're going to have to like live with the house, in the house with them. They'll pay for your way, but they won't give you any money. He's like, I don't know anyone crazy enough to do this. You got to sign on for a year, uh, except you. You want it? And I was like, all right. You know, so within 30 days of being deported from Jamaica and coming back, I was in Indonesia. Um, and that was that. Yeah. Wow. You should definitely write a book. That sounds like a lot of work. I'm trying to breed super dwarfs over here. <laughs> I mean, you can hire someone to do it. Your your story, and we haven't even heard all of it, is definitely book worthy. Well, yeah, definitely. By the time I moved to Indonesia, things started to get interesting. So, <laughs> started? Are you serious? It was. I had. I had a pretty couple crazy you years. You came out the overseas. womb, and you're just. You were interesting. Like, <laughs> I don't know where my parents were. My wife is always like. What on earth is going on? <laughs> Every time she hears me tell a story from my childhood, she's like, "Didn't you have a mother?" Bless <laughs> my mom. And I'm like, "Dude, my mom was great." What are you talking about? So, so yeah. how was this family in Indonesia, and how did you kind of get along with everything going on there? Uh, they were, you know, well, the family was fantastic. It was the Scheunemann family, Sven and Joyce. So the 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 father was German. 
Um, he was actually the brother of the guy that I knew. So I kind of had a little bit of a connection there. Um, and then the mother was Indonesian. She was from the Halmheras or, or uh, you know, in, in like Eastern uh, Indonesia, uh, just off of like Papua New Guinea. Um, and her name was Joyce. And then the kid's name was Kevin. And I believe he was in ninth grade when I went out there. And I was 20 years old, 20 years old at the time when I moved to Indonesia. So, um, so I was there to help Kevin with his homework. And he had like, kind of like most people have a year of Spanish in high school, but they don't know anything. He'd like taken a year of English or something. And so basically I'm living with his family. The parents don't speak English really at all. Uh, Kevin doesn't speak English, but he's going to school to his English speaking school. I don't speak Indonesian or German at the time. (laughs) So for three months, I just kind of showed up helped the kid with his homework and didn't talk to anybody you know um but that my my big problem was my visa was staying there long enough with the visa because they couldn't provide my visa for me so i had to sign on with this company that um uses native english teachers and uh and it, what i would do was travel around to different universities and teach native English, not like an Indonesian who learned English, but they wanted Western English. So I was a hot commodity out there because I spoke English. And as you guys can tell, I don't, I don't have a problem speaking a lot. (laughs) So, um, so I, I got, that was perfect for me because I was able to live there in Western Java with Kevin and, uh, and, and that was kind of my home base. So I, I ended up having like fly rivers, turtles and spinning cobras and these poor host families house and a saltwater crocodile and all that crazy stuff, um, which was a lot of fun. But then when, you know, like every now and then I would go travel all around these different islands and that allowed me to really kind of explore Indonesia as a whole, which I had no idea the, the, diversity of this country i mean it's it's seventeen thousand islands spread over a space the size of the united states and in the one country alone they speak 350 languages so there's that many completely night and day different cultures there so i mean what an experience but um how do you navigate that as someone who doesn't speak any of the, the language and clearly doesn't fit into any you know uh, you just kind of do what you want. You carry a big knife. You get sick a lot, uh, you know, and, and just make it happen. I mean, I with all the venomous and the reptile keeping stuff, you know, if, if we want to get a little bit deeper for a minute, I struggled a lot with uh, like self-hatred and depression when I was younger. And I was like ready to die. I just wanted to go out in a ball of fiery glory. So I was like, you know what? I was like, I can kill three or four Indonesians before they get to me let's bring it on, you know? And so, um, all that's just to say, like, I really didn't have any sense of personal safety. So I wouldn't recommend doing it the way that I did it to anybody because there was a lot of times I should have died. I just happened not to. So, um, but it, it, but that kind of carelessness for my own self-preservation definitely allowed me to have a lot of really cool experiences. Um, and so it, my, my basic goal was to push and push until I died. Um, and it just hasn't happened yet. But, um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, I've, so since then, I've been to, like, I made friends on Komodo Island. I've been there seven times. Um, you know, I, I have learned a little bit of the language of Indonesia. At least, you know, they, they have, like, a big national language, which is Bahasa Indonesia. It's the same language that they speak in Malaysia. 
Um, and then they have all their local languages. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, one of the, the, the reason I ended up coming home from all of that good times out there was I had just gotten very, very sick. Um, I had typhoid and malaria at the same time. It was right around Christmas and this was 2000. You can Google the date, make sure it's correct. But it was 2004, I think. Um, do you guys remember the tsunami that hit mm. Banda Aceh, the big one? I so, definitely was 11 years old, so I definitely don't remember that. That's when I was living in Indonesia. <laughs> and so as like for a little bit of background, out of high school, I played football and I was a lineman. And when I went to Indonesia, I was like a beefy, uh, like 195 pounds or something. Um, and then by the time it just a, a little under a year later, the tsunami hit around Christmas time. And, uh, I was 135 pounds at that time just because of dealing with, wow. uh, so I'd lost 60 pounds or whatever in a year, um, from the malaria and the typhoid and just puking my guts out and everything else every day because of all the terrible places I kept going and it just wouldn't let up. And, I had this one, I don't know what the illness was, but I was out of it for like three days. Um, the family tied me to the bed, poor family, because um, I was like delirious and stuff. But I woke up and it was two days before Christmas. And then the day after Christmas, I think, was when the tsunami hit. And I was living in Java, but Sumatra is the next island to the west. And... Um, it was just, it was devastational. I mean, it was absolutely like nothing. So like most of us, I mean, you guys might be too young, but 9-11, you remember yes. the, the impact of 9-11 and the, the death toll and the fatality of 9-11 was about 3,000 some odd people. And the tsunami in Indonesia, for comparison, I know it's a third world country, but the death toll was 300,000 people. Wow. So it was 109 11s that happened all at once. Basically, anyone within 10 miles of the coast was wiped out. It's gone. And yeah, it was crazy. So I, I, um, I noticed the, the tremendous outpouring of money that was going to the country, but the Indonesian government is very corrupt and very little of that money was actually getting to the people. So immediately I contacted everybody I knew in America and I was like, look guys, I'm going to go distribute, uh, you know, relief stuff in Banda Aceh, my, in Banda Aceh myself. Uh, if you want to spend money, don't give it to the government. If you give it to me, 100% of it, will go to relief effort. And so I teamed up with some doctors and scientists and stuff like that. And we managed to charter a plane. We were actually the second plane to arrive in Banda Aceh after the tsunami. The first one was a military plane. The second one was us. And um, we brought some some semi-trucks and stuff from Maidan, which was a close-by city, uh, just packed full of as much medical supplies and food and water and stuff as we possibly could. And like I was there four days before the Red Cross got there to give you some perspective on it. Um, and it was just, it was just incredible. So you gotta, you gotta remember just a couple days prior, I woke up from a delirious fever, uh, and didn't know where I was and stuff like that. But now I'm out in Banda Aceh distributing relief stuff. And I mean, the sad thing was I had, I had, um, just an, a, a caravan of semi trucks with relief stuff that me, that me and the German guy that I knew and, and some doctors and, and other translators and stuff passed out and, all those supplies were gone in a day. 
And I was slated to stay there a week before anything was leaving that I could get out on. So, I mean, I don't even want to talk about the stuff that I saw and went through for the next week. It was, it was just, it was uh, unreal. But I don't remember eating or sleeping or anything like that during that time. It was just terrible. And I was already so thin. And for me, when I traveled, one fun thing I would do is like never cut my hair or never shave so that I would just look like a madman when I came back. I don't know, that was entertaining to me or whatever. But when I got back from Banda Aceh to Western Java, I was just fried. I was just, just absolutely toasted from being so sick, all the things I'd seen emotionally and mentally. And I really felt like if I continued to live in Indonesia, I would die. You know, I just, I couldn't do it. So I, I said goodbye to the family. I came back to America and I remember my own mother picking me up at LAX, uh, didn't recognize me when I got off the plane. I was just, I just looked so different. I walked right up to her and I was just like face to face with her. And she's looking around me, trying to find me. And I was like, mom, it's me. She's like, oh my gosh. Starts crying and everything. I look like Kurt Cobain right at the end or something like that, you know? Now, like you said before, you were like someone who went to such lengths because it's almost like you didn't care whether you lived or died. Being so close to whether it's the death of other people through the tsunami or like death yourself from illness and stuff like that. Like what did you end up taking away from that when you came back here? I mean, you know, there's, there's something inside of you when you go through that kind of stuff. Uh, I definitely dealt with like a lot of post-traumatic stress type of stuff after that for a while and, and things like that. But, um, it gives you, it gives you a real perspective on life. And if you're going to continue to survive, events like that even just emotionally forget about the physical aspect of being all you know just skinny and stuff but just emotionally survive you have to find the good things in life and i think there's there's something whether it's you joe or you melissa or me or any person on the planet any species of reptile we work with any kind of thing we can take on our endeavor there's a good and bad side to it and I just choose since that time to look and find the good in, in people and things and focus on developing that. Um, because it, at the end of it, we all die and just return to dust from which we came, right? And, uh, and whatever we did in our lives is the only thing that lives on. So I, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but you know, you got to try to have some kind of a legacy during that point. And I think every one of us affects the people that we're around negatively or positively. You can feel it. When you step into somebody's presence, there's a change of atmosphere if they're a really positive person or a really horrible person. You know, and so it's, it's kind of like, what kind of impact are you going to have on the world? And I don't know why I wake up every day, but every day that I wake up, I'm like, all right, let's figure out why I'm here today and see what good I can do that day, you know, and that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what I, my, I took away from it. I don't well, know why if, Melissa just ran away. I think I just scared her off. could see the video, you're the first one to ever make Melissa cry on this. this <laughs> I'm <excellent>. sorry, Melissa. <laughs> Well, let me show you just because it tees into it. it, This is something I think is funny. A lot of people ask me how much, how I get so much done in a day owning the business and all that. Mm -hmm. You won't be able to see this, but anybody watching can see this. I actually have a time management strategy that's based on Benjamin Franklin's time management strategy. And so if you look at this, if you guys Google 
what Benjamin Franklin does in a daily living. You will find this daily schedule. And he has the hours and events for how he works versus personal time for that work-life balance. And then on this side here, he asks himself two questions. And I ask myself this every day. The first question is, what good shall I accomplish today? And the second question is, what good have I done today? And it's a little something to keep me accountable. On this side of the sheet, I just have my different activities de developed into what I might do that day, create, maintain, reach out, or notes. But um, I'm trying to find my one for today. Have you read the, the Walter Isaacson um, book on Benjamin Franklin? I have not, no. Is that where it Benjamin came from? Franklin is like a million people in one. He's just outrageously productive and had like multiple careers and just so absolutely so like impactful. Absolutely. And that's and that was kind of my thing uh, when I first started, when I made the jump to, you know, like working with the dwarfs and super doors full time. I know that I needed to track my progress somewhere because people will take so much of your time if you let them and you cannot just live reaction reactionally. Um, you've, you've got to be intentional with your time. And so by writing out my to-do list, I, I sit down on Monday, I have a weekly thing like Mondays are for this, Tuesdays are for that, but I, every Monday morning. So that was this morning, right? I sat down and I wrote out what I'm going to accomplish every day now through Friday. And, uh, and it, and I, the, what I love about Benjamin Franklin's thing was his perspective, you know, he would do the minuscule things for the day, like, oh, I got to mail this, or I have to call that person. But his perspective was always like, what impact am I going to have today? So if today's the last day you get on earth, is it going to be worthwhile? You know, and I, I think to try to have that perspective as we move forward is, is that's to answer your question, what did I take out of all that almost dying and being around so much death and all that kind of stuff? Um, that's definitely what I've taken out of it is that life is short. Life is sweet. It can leave at any moment. And if you're going to do anything worthwhile, you better damn, you, you damn well better be intentional about it. Now, as a young person, how did you start living intentionally and kind of where did that get you or where did you turn your life from there? Um, well, so I, I decided there were certain skills and things that I wanted to learn. And I, and I was kind of like the learn to swim by jumping in water sort of a guy. So I just started tackling things after that. Um, in, in terms of like, you know, you kind of want to like a lot of young people, I think we want to build our career. And so many times I, I see people fresh out of college being like, well, maybe I can get into a good company with good, you know, growth within that company. And, and that's great. But I think if you're depending on someone else for your personal and betterment, it's short-sighted, you know? So if there's something you want to experience in life, go get it, you know, go figure out what it is. And so when I returned from Indonesia, I was kind of like, well, I'm in America, so I, was, I have to live like a normal life again, I guess. So what is it that I care to learn and do? I'm sorry, Melissa. You never lived back. a normal life. Let's acknowledge that. <laughs> I did. I did. I'm just a good storyteller. I mean, it's all true, but it's – my wife calls it's hard, it says it's hard lies. Like if you were there, it wasn't that spectacular. Just, I just put all of it in 15 minutes, so it sounds crazy. But it was spread out. Um. But, uh, yeah, I, I kind of had to figure out what I, what I wanted to do with it and stuff. So, 
I began doing uh, venom toxicology studies with uh, University of, of San Diego. That was a lot of fun because I had all this knowledge about where all those crazy rattlesnakes lived in Southern California. And they were, at the time, uh, particularly interested in the hybrids between the what we called Mojave Greens and Southern Pacifics. Um, and I knew there was only a few spots you could find those, but they were they had these, these really unique venom properties. So I was finding them these wild hybrids and, and milking them for their venom, and the students would then take it from there. So this was and, uh, a time where a civilian, just kind of regular guy, although you have all this experience, they don't discount you for like just being a normal person, not being a herpetologist and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah, they do. Um, but I'm a firm believer in it's about who you know and what you know. And I'm relentless. I don't think I've ever had a job that I filled out a job application for. Anywhere that I wanted to go, I would like uh, a lot of people know me, like in the reptile world, anyways, from prehistoric pets. I started working there in 2000. Oh gosh, it was like eight years ago, nine years ago now, whatever that is. So, like, I think it was like 2009 I started working there. Um, well, maybe 2010. I don't remember. But, anyways, it was a while back. And when I wanted to work there, um, I was about to get married and I had just broken my back with some trying to train some Mustangs. Wait, wait, so I had wait, a, wait, wait. You I skipped your, a couple like, of years. Like you literally broke your back. That was the third time I broke my back. It was pretty hard. <laughs> so would you you fell off a horse or something? Back to uh, horse kicked me in the stomach and broke my spine in three places. Yeah. I was at the time I was managing, this was after the venom toxicology. I ended up managing a horse ranch and this horse ranch was really cool. They would um, basically do Mustang roundups where they would catch these wild Mustangs um, out in the West. And uh, most of those Mustangs were, were rounded off and sold to glue factories or whatever. But this ranch would buy the Mustangs and then they would do, are you guys familiar with Mustang competitions? You ever see those? So you take a horse that's never seen a human, you pair it up with a rider, you get three months to train it, and then you compete at the end of three months. And they try to see who has the best relationship with their horse. And it's amazing when you work with horses, you can have like a telepathic communication with them almost. It's incredible. And my retics are like that, I swear. Um, They are that in tune with their keepers. But funny enough, a lot of my animal, animal handling techniques did come from working with wild horses and trying to convince an animal that's capable of killing you to trust you and love you and listen to you for some reason. And so, you know, retics were my retirement from dangerous animals, you know, but, um, anyway, I did that for a number of years. It was great. It was a lot of fun, but eventually this, just this powerhouse mare with a new foal, I was taken around. She was normally gentle, but I I just spooked her around her baby and she kicked me in the stomach and broke my spine in three places. And so it was about, I think it was like nine months of rehab to learn how to walk or whatever and get that all going again. And when I did, I needed a desk job. Um, and I really was into prehistoric pets was starting to open their reptile zoo. Plus they bred retics, you know, which I always loved since that first jam I had back in. So anyway, Jay and I were kind of friends just because we both talk and stuff like that and like swapping stories. And, and so what I started doing was I was on disability. So I was, I, I wasn't able to work or get a paycheck. So as I was learning how to walk, I would just go down to prehistoric and spend all day there. 
And it was kind of funny. I was just like a guy, but I would walk around and literally stop and talk to customers and be like, hey, how you doing? My name is Garrett. Can I answer any questions for you? And they're like, uh, yeah, do you work here? And I'm like, yeah, kind of. What do you need? You know? <laughs> and then <clears throat> and then they would start to, uh, you know, start to talk to me. And I, I was selling snakes and all this. And um, I really hooked up with a guy named Tim O'Reilly there that is the, the retic breeder. He uh, kind of took me under his wing. And, and Jay loved me too. But every time I talked to Jay, I was like, when are you giving me a job? And he's like, I can't afford to give you another job. You know, we're doing good financial straits in the company right now and all this stuff. And so I was hanging out with Tim and Tim's like, we're going to get you a job. Don't worry. And I started volunteering at the reptile shows and I was just selling stuff. And eventually yeah, they gave not filling out job application. That's it. Them. And yeah. yeah. And so the idea <laughs> is I went in, they knew who I was. I was making more sales than their, than their salespeople. And uh, you just become valuable to the people you want a job from. And then you ask whatever you want. And, and that's it. You make yourself familiar. You get to know who the right person is. It's all about networking. Obviously, though, message to millennials out there, which I guess I'm a millennial technically now anyway. But I never back, can remember like what the – it confuses me. I don't know. But when I grew up, they called me Generation X, and I connected with that. Millennial thing, not so much. <laughs> but at any rate, millennials, don't be entitled. Yes, sir. No, sir. Learn your stuff. Be invaluable. Be a good, valuable worker. Be better than everyone else in the company. Outpace everyone, and then you'll get your job. And so with, within about four months of doing that, I was the sales manager at Prehistoric Pets. And that's how most people in the retic world got to know me um, because I, I hit it hard, fast, and furious, and they had some incredible animals there. Um, and sales were just slow at the time for whatever reason. So I kind of looked at the assets they had, what the market needed and started figuring out ways to connect those two things. And I, I just had a blast. And then, and I learned a ton because obviously I've been keeping reptiles for a long time, but doing it at a commercial level, uh, at that, you know, at that, in that, you know, grandiose kind of atmosphere, it's just a, it's just a whole different thing. You know, I mean, I was, I was doing international marketing, setting up international brokers and I was selling domestically. I was, I was dealing with, uh, with sales in the six and seven digits. You know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's crazy. Um, but it was a, it was a tremendous education for me, but Melissa did, you know, to get back to your point, I mean, that's, that's how you do it. I mean, what, you know, um, you just figure out what you want to do and you don't stop, mm -hmm. you know, if there's a place you want to do it, go there every day. Right. be there until they until they can't let you go you know yeah it seems like we always get people asking you know how do you get a job working with animals how do you do this how do you do that and i guess the answer is just kind of at the end of the day relentlessness yeah relent camp outside don't ever leave get to know everybody bring a sack lunch and eat it in the employee's lunchroom until <laughs> someone keeps you up you'll be surprised how many times they don't you know what i mean I'm serious. I'm serious. That's what you do. You just go get what you want and you do not leave. Now, what are some things that you were able to take from your experience at Prehistoric Pets and say things that you wanted to leave and things that you wanted to bring with you kind of in your brain for your new company? You know, things you wanted to do, things you didn't want to do the same. You know, what would you learn? That's a really good question. Um, 
I'm going to have, honestly, some difficulty answering that because I am not the most politically correct Without guy. throwing people completely <laughs> under the bus, but I mean... Well, I mean, half me, of yeah. your question is, what wouldn't I do like them? And that's a, that's, a tough, that's a tough one to answer because I'll tell you, just like I told you a minute ago, it's easy to slam somebody that's as public as prehistoric pets or Jay Brewer. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, which one of us is perfect? There's not one. You know what I mean? And the more public you become, the, the easier it is for people to see your faults. Look at how much people, I mean, any big figure in the industry for retics, it would be Bob Clark, Kevin McCurley, Jay Brewer. People are going to slam those guys for the reptile world as a whole. You got Brian Barcheck, who takes more crap than anybody. And I'm telling you, he has good things and bad things that he does just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, Things I learned at Prehistoric Pets and on the positive side of how I did it. I mean, there was a lot of marketing. There was a tremendous amount of experience just in how to treat customers. When you deal with literally tens of thousands of customers, um, you get a very good feel for what to do and not to do. And uh, Jay was an, uh, an amazing guy in the fact that he protected his employees because I was still new to that and I was learning a lot and I made a lot of mistakes. I screwed up a lot. I mean, I I wish I could tell you that I was a perfect guy too, but I mean, I made mistakes that caused the fatality of animals sometimes. I made mistakes that made us lose customers sometimes. And Jay always had enough faith in me to, um, to say, hey kid, good job. You know what I mean? Well, not good job. He usually was like, hey, you screwed the pooch on this one, but what are you going to learn from it? And I believe in you and let's do better now, right? And and he really invested in me in that way. And so, um, you know, personality-wise, he's got a lot of personality and he he can be difficult to work with if, if we're honest. Um, but um, but he has a lot of really good traits. And, and if you are the kind of person that can, I mean, my... My theory on life is this. Melissa, can I ask how old you are? I'm 24. You're 24 years old. How much reptile experience do you have? Oh, none. A year and a half. It's a year, <laughs> since we started dating. I, I never touched a snake before I started dating him. Okay. So you got, and you guys have been dating for a year and a half. Yeah. So you have 24 years of life experience and one and a half years of reptile experience that I can never possibly hope to have because it's impossible for me to live a day in your shoes. So for a year and a half, you've been learning stuff about reptiles that I could never, ever hope to have in all of my life. So if you and I sit down and have a conversation, if I'm wise, I can learn about reptiles from you. There's That's definite things I can learn. take on it. And not only that, you have 24 years of life experience. A second ago, you walked out of the room crying. So that means there is something, some genuine part of your soul that I connected with or could connect oh, with. Oh, well, and I, 100%. It was certain, just Katrina. It made me think about Katrina. Totally. She's Absolutely. from New Orleans, so. So, yeah. I yeah. Through Katrina, I mean, and that was crazy, my... right? And when you're outside and you see it on the news, it's just not the same as being there. Am I right? Yeah. And so you and I, I feel like we could sit down and learn from everyone. But I'll tell you what. My seven-year-old daughter that grew up in my household has seven years of experience in life that I could never possibly hope to have. So there's the people out there, especially on social media, that like to be the experts and put everyone else down. And yeah, we could, I mean, if you want to, we can pick apart anybody on the planet. But wouldn't it? Wouldn't our time be better spent trying to see what we can learn from one another to become a, the best possible versions of ourselves? Definitely. And so Jay had 
I mean, you think my story is crazy. That guy dropped out of high school at 14 as an orphan and started his own business as a commercial fisherman. He started that. He, I mean, he's, he's Jay, I love you, but he's like almost illiterate, but he's built this 30 employee business from scratch. I mean, the dude, that's awesome. I've been through some stuff and to discount him because you think he's whatever you think he's annoying. Maybe you think he's disingenuous or whatever the kind of things that people would say online that don't even know him. Um, I think is really short sighted. You know, I, I think that the guy has a wealth of knowledge as does anybody that has really has, you know, that's trying to learn and innovate and has life, you know, hands on life experience with reptiles. Um, so how could I not learn amazing things? And, and, you know, when you go with a commercial system like that, you're, you're, you're going for maximum efficiency. Um, and efficiency is good. It's good even for the reptiles because the more efficient they're going to be, the better their care is going to be. You know, at the point you have to start cutting them back on food or, you know, sparing money to raise your reptiles, you're not doing okay. I don't care if they're in a full naturalistic environment or in a bin setup, you know? So, um, it, it's not really like, is this way or that way right or wrong? It's about achieving a balance that's best for you and best for your animals. And so um, certainly there was a ton of information I learned about retics, especially on the genetics side. Uh, there were so many incredible genetic things happening, even weird stuff um, that I, I spent, uh, you know, like arguing with people online when I was first there and maybe a little bit more young and inexperienced. I tend not to do that anymore. Like people want to ask me, I'll explain. But if people want to argue, I just let them be right. I don't care, you know. Um, but there were so many um, amazing things that we saw and I started researching things like gynogenesis and parthenogenesis that we saw out of these strange clutches or null genes or, um, you know, uh, paradoxism and, and chimera traits and things like that. All the weird stuff, as well as just random traits like calicos and in, in reticulated pythons and breeding with those hybridization um, I mean, just stuff that I could have never hoped to do on my own if I didn't have hundreds of breeder animals yeah, available. Mean, exposure. Um, you have access to a sample size that's well beyond what any hobbyist breeder would be able to, especially with retics. You know, you're having these giant. Absolutely. And, and in my eyes, this, this probably would vary depending on who you ask and what their time frame was and what projects they work with. But in my eyes, I worked at Prehistoric Pets during the heyday of exciting new morph combos. But even at that time, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that as much as I love a giant snake that's approaching 20 feet in length and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's just like a, that's like an African lion, right? It's just a majestic animal. As much as I love that, I don't think I could keep 30 of them, you know? And, uh, and so I, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that for every het albino, I sold somebody that was an albino anthrax that I wouldn't be able to sell them. So for every base morph that I sold somebody, it was an expensive combo that I couldn't sell them because at a certain point you hit maximum capacity on those animals. And so when I moved out of that, I was like, you know, I'm going to get rid of, I had a good number of retics just from having worked there and stuff like that. Mainland retics, you mean? Mostly mainlands. But, but even, even when I was at prehistoric, 
my little pet project over there was always the dwarf and super dwarf projects. And uh, they were not always the biggest uh, things with uh, Jay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he likes his big retics and I understand that. I mean, they're, they're incredible animals. Um, but he, he also kind of has that like zoo mentality, you know? And my thing was like, what can I actually keep in my garage at home and be successful with? And so I did a lot of, uh, buying and selling and trading and stuff for dwarf and super dwarf retic breeders with the, with the great breeders of the time. People like the gas bars, Travis Kubis, Jason Reed, uh, Sal Valeta, um, that's how I got to know a lot of those guys that did a lot of that, those kind of funky projects and, and, uh, things like that. So do you and, think your experience at prehistoric pets allowed you access to maybe learn more about the door and like learn the people in that sector? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it gave me authority because I was in charge of their, their vaults. You know, I was, I was in charge of all the, if you wanted a retic, you were calling me. Yeah. If you wanted a retake from, from prehistoric pets, you were calling me. Even if you thought Jay Brewer was texting you back, it was me on the other side of the phone, you know, because, <laughs> because Jay is Jay. doing He's that. And I love it. We do it yeah. so many times. It's me texting. And well, I try to believe that people think it's him, but half the time everyone knows it's me, but <laughs> well, and that's the way it was. I mean, it's not like I was faking it or whatever, but you know, people usually would find out that it was me in the end anyways, but yeah, it ab- absolutely. It gave me access. It was like a all, all expensive paid to the inner circles of the reptile industry so that definitely especially as we're talking about networking and who you know Mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing that's absolutely the biggest thing yeah and i mean we talked a bunch about that before because just from this podcast you know we meet new people all the time and we're always encouraging people to get out and start talking to people and meet people but i feel like really the dichotomy is why i'm so interested in your mentality towards your business because Jay is obviously large level, you know, he has dreams of giant zoos and doing all this. And then you're more like small condensed. You seem to have some type of work life balance. So, I mean, as far as moving your business forward, do you always want to stay the size you're at and kind of maintain your balance? Like, what are you trying to do in that regard? That's a, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, until this point, up until now, I have been I, my rule for myself is kind of like my rule my mom had for me when I was a kid: don't outgrow this room, you know. And so I have this one room, and and just a you know a year and a half ago today, I had several uh, you know large mainland retic breeding projects going on. Um, but with the super dwarfs and the, the way that I do the caging, I like to give everybody a little more space. My big retics have big space, you know, and even my little retics have more space than most people I think give them. But, um, for every mainland female I moved out, I could move in eight super dwarf females, mm. you know? And so the natural way to grow, to have eight new clutches instead of one, even though it might be the same number of eggs, but, um, but there was eight new projects that I could do in place of one with the super dwarfs. Um, and so I, it just slowly kind of started moving that direction. And now I'm to the point where the only thing that I have that is not a dwarf or a super dwarf is a project that I plan to breed into dwarf and super dwarf someday. Um, does that kind of keep you out of the rat race of the retic guys and the mutations and all the mainland, uh, mutations going on and kind of the, it does, it does. And I love it. 
and I just kind of I just kind of focus on my projects and my things. And you know, one of the things that I thought was really funny when I first started uh, selling retics again. Of course, I thought that the main part of my customer base would be people that I knew from back in the day, from working at Prehistoric. And certainly, I still talk to those people. But everybody that's buying from me, there I mean, there are a few people from back in the day that I'm, I'm doing business with. But by and large, it's new. It's all new people, new people getting into stuff. That's awesome. And yeah, and I think that's because of the way that I've approached it rather than trying to be in there and get like my animals a little bit cheaper than everyone else's or, or get a little more exposure than everybody else or whatever the case may be. Um, what I decided to do was take an approach where I would just give and give and give and give to the retech community and the reptile community as a whole, as much as I can and test my theories in life of reciprocity. You know, you reap what you sow kind of a thing. And so, um, that's what my focus has been. If you watch my YouTube channel on Reach Out Reptiles, all I do is just give out cool information about super dwarves that's not available in other places online. Um, very little is still known uh, about these. And what is known is kind of locked in the mental vault of the people working with the animals and not available to the public. And so it's kind of the way that it was when I was a kid. So I've kind of found this place where I get to be the guy to usher in the uh the information i've worked with them long enough to kind of have a lot of the bugs worked out right. and and I sort of have a polished message but i've i've found in social media a platform by which i can kind of give back to everybody that is interested in looking towards these kinds of animals and stuff so um and and to speak to work life balance one of the things that I did at prehistoric pets just to make ends meet, trying to live in Southern California, which is like outrageously expensive, um, and having a, a new family at that time, because at a certain point I did get married and start having kids and everything, um, you know, and I, it, I just had to work more to make more money. And I never got to see my family. By the time I, I left prehistoric, I, I, I barely ever got to see them. So work-life balance was a, a big deal to me. Uh, and I, I came out here and I got another job and, and it was starting to pile on more and more pressure and stuff like that. And it was kind of like, here we go again, you know. And uh, I just decided it was kind of time to, time to do it for myself so that at least I would be the one pressuring myself to be away from my family. And it is still kind of a test I mean, the, the public demands attention. Um, I'm getting texts and Facebook messages now as we speak. And it's a, it's a, you know, in, in my time zone, it's 830 at night, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm getting all these people that are messaging me and I'm going to leave them there till tomorrow and then say, Hey, good morning. You know, sorry, I didn't get back to you last night. It was with my family. Anyway, this is what I did. Or if someone texts me on a Saturday, I try to take the weekends for my kids. You know, I have four kids now and, uh, and I really want them to know who their dad was because, you know, my dad growing up, being a producer and all that kind of stuff, I mean, he just, I mean, my dad still works a, a day that would bring a, a young man to his knees. You know, like the guy is a machine um, and he's a great man, but I, I didn't, I knew him, but I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. You know, I, I don't want that for my kids. So, um, so I, I try to force myself to stay within this room 
And if I do need to grow, I'll grow in numbers. I'll grow in specialization. I will make better and better animals so that the sale of one animal and the time it takes to, because it takes the same amount of time to sell a $300 snake as it does a $3,000 snake, sometimes more. Because it, at the $300 level, you're dealing with a lot of beginners at the $3,000 level. Out. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not about that. I mean, with my YouTube channel, anybody can jump on there and learn about this stuff. You know, but, but um, you know, $500 is a low-end snake for me to sell. And most of my stuff is selling off of waiting lists. I get people all the time, like, what's your availability list? I checked your website. There was nothing on there. It's like, it's because I have nothing for sale. <laughs> I have four clutches hatching this month but I don't have anything for sale. It, you know, tell me what you want. What is your price range? Let's find the perfect snake for you and I will go make it. You know what I mean? And, and we'll get you the, the perfect snake and you'll get your pick out of the babies before it ever goes public. And that's, that's kind of the way that my business has gone. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy with that. I really enjoy it. I don't have to compete with people online. Um, I get to have real conversations. I get the benefit of knowing that who my animals, which are my babies, right? Mm -hmm. I get to know who those people, like the people that those things are going to. I have an accounting for all of that. And I've been doing it long enough now that I'm, I'm able to see my customers grow up, be successful, breed the animals. And, and then I, I'm even buying animals back off of them because they furthered the selective breeding one generation. I'm like, man, great job with that. And, you know, it's, it's always great to get like the grandbabies off of a snake that I sold back or right. something like that. It's, it's, it's a really fun thing. So I've, I really built more than client base. I feel like I'm building a community here and it, it's just been great i try to support everybody as much as i can and with those principles of reciprocity they're supporting me they're so they're enabling me to have the lifestyle that i have with my wife and kids and working in the reptile room here you know in the basement and just doing whatever i can whatever i can find to do it's great i think that's important to appreciate that our level at this time in the hobby is that we can build those little communities and always be talking to people and we have things like this and we have a YouTube channel and all that stuff. But Melissa, what do you want to ask? Yeah, I had a question before you were going to oh, talk. Okay, um, okay, there's a couple from the chat and then I have a question. Um, Brandon Wheeler from Moralia House uh, will really comment. He said that you probably know one of his good friends, Mike McConnell, because he worked at Prehistoric Forever. Yeah, I know Mike. He's missing a finger from a rattlesnake, I think. Good old Mike. Good guy. Okay, okay. <laughs> Kindred spirit. And then um, Brandon Wheeler also asked, um, do you feel that super dwarfs deserve a separate species status from the mainland? Uh, that's a good question. But if I give you an honest answer, a lot of us in the reptile trade like to pretend like we're scientists and we're not. And, you know, I've, I've worked with people, like I said, with the toxicology studies in the universities and stuff like that. But I am not the kind of guy that deserves. I'm very happy to see them get their own subspecies. Um, I know that the motivation behind that stuff, though, a lot of times is personal or, poli or political. Uh, the reason why they have their own subspecies status is because someone is like, hey, the skin trade is decimating these. The, pest, the pet trade is decimating these. Let's uh, find out if these are a unique species worth protecting on their own before they're gone. Right. And so that's why that's happened. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, they are very different, but I don't know at what point does it distinguish a species 
you know, status versus subspecies status. So, I mean, if, if reticulated pythons and Timor species are at, and Timor pythons are at the species level, no, super dwarf retics are a retic. They're not a Timor, you know? So that's kind of the way I see it from that regard, maybe a subspecies, but, um, I, you know, I don't know, like, when I was growing up, there was like 18 species of crocodiles. Now there's like 20, what, I don't know, 27 or something. And nobody's found anything. Nobody's found any new species. They've just divided up the ones that were always there. So, you know, it's kind of the way, like you can divide it endlessly. I don't know. We do see some of the things like um, some of the problems that you have if you're trying to make a bat eater, which is a retic Burmese python hybrid. Uh, happen in first generation crosses with super dwarfs and so there is there's some interesting stuff but i don't know how much of that pops up in subspecies either mm-hmm. so fair question brandon but i'm not the guy to ask for that you got to go to some geneticists for that there are a lot of really cool papers online available for download stuff that i've been studying and stuff from from people that are actually doing the research out there doing all that hard work and they're awesome reads i'd recommend looking that stuff up Awesome. I mean, uh, no, I wanna... I'm still going. Okay, sorry. I'm still going. She's got a few questions and then one of her own. Come Thank on. you. Keep uh, up. Um, okay. <laughs> a different Brandon asked um, if you could touch on your scrub project. Oh, the scrub project. Um, scrub pythons are fun. I love scrub pythons. I had them when I was a kid. I have them again now. Um, I have some Wamena Barnex, but all they are, I've, I am not breeding them. I have never bred them. Um, you know, I, I picked up some, some choice animals from Dan Maliri, who is obviously like the man when it comes to getting like new imported scrubs. And that is another species like the Superdorf that I would just desperately like to see really take hold in captivity. Mm-hmm. People do not give them the credit they deserve. They're an incredible animal to work with. But um, to be honest with you, Brandon, uh, I am actually selling my adult scrubs. I know, I know. That's the issue, man. Everyone gets them up to adult or they get imported. You're right. They don't give them time to settle down and they never. Guilty as charged. You're (laughs) absolutely right. Not that I have scrubs. Absolutely right. I do think that's a big issue with them is moving the adults around all the time. Now, mine were more like juvies and now they're like young adults. So they still have. I've got a lot of work into them as far as establishing them and stuff. Uh, and Dan did too. I mean, he does a really good job with his stuff. Um, and I haven't had them that, that long. So I'm hoping that they, and, and to your point, Joe, um, I am selling them to somebody that is a, is as best as I can tell going to be a forever home for them. And I would love to get back captive bred babies and start, you know, same way I am with a lot of the retics working away from the wild caught stuff into good bloodline F ones. Um, I would love to do that and play with that. Um, they are a cool species, but with the way that I am now and how stretched thin I am with the work life balance thing and everything, uh, their scrubs are kind of like a side project and a pet for me, um, and I I can't I can't afford it right now. I would I'm, love to. I'm quick to to mess with you about getting rid of them, but then again, I'm not the one opening them up and having a heat seeking <laughs> scrub into my face. They're awesome. Like They've that. never they headbutt me, but they don't bite. 
They're great. They're wild caught and I have no problems with them. I handle them as they want to be handled. If they want to climb out onto me, I allow them. And my philosophy, this kind of goes back to no sense of self-preservation. My philosophy is if you're a sexy enough reptile, you're allowed to bite me. Um, There's (laughs) my Facebook profile. I think right now is me like making out with a Cuban crocodile. Uh, It's just a baby one. But, you know, Cubans are known for being ridiculously feisty. And it was at my buddy Forrest Fanning's place. And the guy's got some amazing stuff. And someone was like, that thing's going to bite your nose off. And I was like, she's so sexy. She's allowed to, you know, like (laughs) you find a girl that hot, she can do whatever she wants to you and you're going to like it. Right. So that's kind of my philosophy on the scrubs. I'm like, light me up, baby. You you're you're allowed to. You know, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's just more power to you. Mm-hmm. So, and and the funny thing is that that you know, all joking aside, when you act like that around them, they let their guards down. They're like, you know, if you're like, I trust you, I'm not here to hurt you, and you can hurt me if you want. They, I think, they view you more as like, you know, wild animals come across other animals all the time in nature. Like, I, the, my mind goes to like rattlesnakes and gopher tortoises. Rattlesnakes living in gopher tortoises that come in and like trample over the rattlesnake as they get down into their burrow and rattlesnakes aren't killing them left and right even if they had the ability to because they realize it's not a predator and it's just something that annoys them every now and then that's what i try to be for my animals just annoyance every now and then (laughs) (laughs) and it's like you can bite me if you want you know okay last question is mine and you're gonna get mad at me because it's not on topic okay um but i wanted to know how did you bring your wife into this whole reptile world how did that go over well uh that's an interesting one um my wife is is probably one of the very few people on the planet that is completely indifferent towards snakes i think snakes elicit some kind of reaction out of most people you either love them or you hate them right <clears throat> or you you're fascinated but you have this trepidation my wife on the other hand is like snake squirrel raccoon whatever like you know what i mean like if i see a wild raccoon i'm probably not gonna go pick it up you know but i'm not afraid of it either i just give it a respectful distance and check it out and that's the way she is with snakes and so she's she's fine with that um she she's never been bit she's actually uh, her and my four-month-old are the only ones in my family that have never been bit all of my other kids have and they realized that it was them that did it and dad explained why that happened and they still love snakes and pick them up and all that and it, you know that might sound like terrible parenting but i'm telling you snake bites are not that bad well, you know if, uh, if you said your four-month-old had been bit i might have a question four-month-old yeah i he might have know questioned it yeah, dad, but... <laughs> yeah dad's gotta protect him at that point but at a certain at a certain age kids start you know they go well why and you're like well i don't know touch it on the head and find out why you know what i mean the snake will stick up for himself and then you'll know a little bit better how snakes act so my wife keeps their distance she's pretty good she she can appreciate a beautiful snake she particularly likes some of the pure sulawesi locality stuff that i have uh she's amazed that there's no captive selective breeding that's gone into those and just how beautiful they are in the flesh um the rare treat to work with things like that um she always feels bad 
for the snakes if something goes wrong or you get one that's sick or, you know, she definitely, my wife is very empathetic. And so anytime a a retake is laying eggs, she feels so bad for her. She's like, Oh, mother of birth, you know, like (laughs) she almost cries. Like at this point, I I don't do maternal incubation. I do pull the clutches and, and the, the mother retakes have a very strong maternal instinct to stay with and protect their eggs, their babies, you know? And so my wife understands that and she feels so bad when she sees the mothers like, where's my eggs? Where's my eggs? When you first pull the clutch and, and she cries every time, like give her her babies, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but, uh, you know, it, it was interesting in the beginning for sure. Um, when we first got married, I was breeding Australian dwarf monitors and I was raising my own cockroaches to feed oh, them. God. Oh, God. We had a one room apartment, not a one bedroom apartment, like a one room apartment. And she was in- still indifferent. No, she was pretty <laughs> sick of it at that point. We got a two bedroom pretty quickly, but, um, Yeah, I remember one of the 55-gallon drums that I raised the roaches in fell over one time, and I tried to catch everything I could, but they were through our house. She was vacuuming them up for months. Uh, Mm -mm, We'd be broken up. Mm -mm. There was another time early on with less than ideal caging. One of my male retics got out in the middle of the night, and our dog was barking, and of course she kicked the dog and was like, shut up, we're sleeping, and then she got up to go to the bathroom and looked up on the towel rack next to the porcelain throne there and there was like an 11 foot retic staring her in the face and i don't think she had any problem with her bowel movement at that time and (laughs) she bought the dog a steak the next day and said thank you thank you sorry i hit you and yeah so we've had some i i pushed it a little bit you know she definitely is more aware of what's going on in our house than my mother was so i have to like kind of comes to terms with that like getting rid of the venomous reptiles i can't just hide things from her so yeah it's a marriage is a compromise for sure but she makes me a better person in the end uh, but as far as the reptiles go you know along with the positive community stuff my, my wife loves going to the shows with me she absolutely loves the the reptile people in the industry we love having people over from out of town to check out the snakes and you know um yeah, I know. She's she's great. I mean, she's I couldn't do the work life balance thing without her because anytime you start your own business, you're gonna have to have the support of your wife. She doesn't come down and clean cages or feed or any of that kind of stuff, but the things that she does with her schedule allow me to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works, you know. Absolutely. Now, Good question. What what did you do um before you decided to go full time? Uh, well, so I moved to Pennsylvania five years ago, bought that house my grandfather built and all that jazz. Um, and I, when I left prehistoric, I was the sales and marketing director. Um, and I picked up the same title at a company that does, uh, quality inspections for steel. So big industrial company, totally different kind of thing. But by this time in my life, I mean, I had done so many different jobs and stuff like that. It really wasn't too much of a jump. I had a new industry to learn. Um, what they were doing is the, the industry is called non-destructive testing. So we were doing ultrasound, x-ray, things like that. And Pittsburgh is known as the city of bridges. We would do inspections on the bridges, make sure that they were safe for public traffic and stuff like that. But, but my job there was basically um, 
that company had one mega client and they needed to get out and, and attract more people. So it was doing the same thing. It was taking clients out to lunch and talking to people and talking about who we are and just finding a need for the solutions that we had in the market. And then if, if there wasn't a need, but there was a lot of other needs, then I would talk to the company about what kind of solutions they needed to create to, to remain and stay relevant. And so just kind of help them develop and build that side of things. So I've always done a marketing and business development background. Um, when you it, switched, I, when you switched over, did you feel a difference as far as, was there some type of emptiness or was it easy for you to transition to not, you know, being in, I hate to say, but your passion, you know, like, was there something missing or you were, I actually kind of- loved it. I loved it. Now I took animals with me. So I still had like my, my, my therapy pets or whatever, you know, I took one pair of retics and the first year out here in Pittsburgh, I had a blast. I bred them and uh, it was a significant clutch. It was only the third person to produce the titanium morph in captivity at the time. And, um, and I, I, uh, did a charity fundraiser that benefited, uh, children's cancer, uh, research and stuff like that. I teamed up with a, an 11 year old cancer survivor here in Pittsburgh and it was really fun. I, I did all this stuff with, with snakes. It was like kind of like just crazy thing, but I got four different countries involved. We raised all this money for children's cancer research. I donated all the, the stuff from that clutch and everything. It was a, it was a grand old time, but that was all like as a hobby, um, and, but that, that, you know, that definitely kept me very busy. It was a lot of fun. Um, I got, you know, radio interviews on the local, they, they called me like the hometown hero or something that the local country station has and, and interviewed me with all that. Cause it was such a unique thing, like giant snake breeder helping children, you know, uh, <laughs> that and, doesn't uh, happen ever. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just went out there with a message, like each of us has our unique gift and we need to figure out how to, to. It, you know, make the world a better place with it. And I think that always resonates with people. Um, and so that was really fun. Um, I did it again with, uh, with an organization that helps, uh, orphans find homes and stuff like that. And so, uh, for three years I worked for that company and, um, and I did the reptile thing on the side and just all my efforts were just kind of went to charity stuff. And, but in the meantime, I was secretly growing my collection. And like you asked about importation with retics, it was, it's been about three years since they banned their importation. So right as the ban came through, the market was like up and down and all over the place. Um, because at that time, people thought we're not going to be able to ship our snakes across state lines. Mm-hmm. And we got like kind of 90 days to figure this out. All kinds of people were dumping their collections I knew at the time, first of all, I didn't care if it, if it happened or not. I was having so much fun doing the charity side of thing and, and not having any kind of professional ties to it. By that time, everything I owned was paid for anyways because of breeding efforts and stuff. And I had money in the bank. So I, I invested when people – at the time when people were dumping their collections, I invested about – I don't know if this is like kosher to share – publicly or whatever, but I dumped like $30,000 ish into picking up rare locality retics or, uh, you know, just really good, not just, not just morphs, but like the bloodlines that I liked and all the animals that I thought I could never own again. Because my thing was, I'm having so much fun out here in Pittsburgh, just running charity stuff with this thing. I'll just do that. And I'll be the guy that has all the cool 
stuff that I always liked. And, and so I built a reptile room. I, I founded Reach Out Reptiles in 2015 is when the company actually started. And I, I dumped a bunch of money into picking up all the cool snakes that I knew would become exceedingly rare. And, and so that if you think about that, it's 2015. This year's 2018. A lot of retics breed when they're eh, three years old-ish. So all those hatchlings and yearlings I picked up are just coming of age now. And we're starting to see some of the fruits of my labor with localities becoming available that haven't been available in a long time. You know, I, I was able to amass a lot of stuff that people would have normally never sold. Um, and that thir- at that time, if you were buying when the market was like it was, if you were investing, you're, you're investing in a crash market. So that $30,000, I, I think I picked up probably $250,000 worth of snakes right. at market, you know, if they were sold at real market values during that time, because I was buying out whole collections and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it, was, everyone it was pretty cool. Was panicking and you dug in deeper. Were you a double down? Did you ever think like this is never going to get reversed and I'm going to be stuck with way too many animals? That wasn't my, my intention was not to invest for necessarily profitable gain. And $30,000 might sound like a big number or whatever, but guess what? It's just a number. Money's all fake anyway. Show me the real value of money. You know, it's just, it's like, if we're honest about these snakes, like what is the market value of a snake? It's whatever we say it is. (laughs) It's made up. It's all made up. It's, it's how much you want it, you know? And if enough people want it, nobody has it. People are willing to pay all kinds of money for it. And that's great. That's really cool because it allows us to, to you, if there's a financial backing behind a project, it allows you to pursue it in a way that does it justice. You know, if, if these kind of snakes, like the, the barn X, for example, the reason why they're not out there is because people will buy wild caught ones for 300 bucks. You know what I mean? If they were all worth $10,000, do you know how cool? the the scrub python market would be right now there's an albino one that comes or something and people complain about that and stuff but that's great because you're right if a if an albino scrub python hit the scene and it was worth fifteen thousand dollars suddenly everyone's buying up female scrubs to make their investment worthwhile and that's when we can really start to see these animals be propagated in captivity for retics. It was tigers and albinos and genetic stripes that did that, you know, for ball pythons, it was, it was, uh, pinstripes and genetic stripes and albinos, you know? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. But, but my thinking was not necessarily, it, it was the fact that I loved retics. I've always loved retics. And there was a lot of retics that I've always wanted to own and didn't have the chance to. So I bought up, everything I could so that I would have the genetics I need to do the projects that I want. And now fast forward three years later, um, that decision has become the foundation for the ability for me to leave the, you know, the professional world and and pursue this full time. And what was the catalyst of you doing that? Or like, what was your, your like method of saying, okay, now's the time to do it. That's a very good question. I don't know if I if I know for sure, but it it I had been through enough companies and made something out of nothing for them, which by the way is something I still do for reptile people. It's like you make something out of nothing. People think they're going to buy two snakes and rub them together and get rich or something like that, and that just doesn't happen because there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, and so I try to fill in the missing pieces for people, and I I did that at Prehistoric. 
Uh, I did that at that Mustang ranch. I did that at the camp that I worked at. I did that at the last company called Integra Testing that I worked at. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of had this, this uh, lingering feeling that I was continually well, – I don't, I don't know how to explain this part to you, Joe, but I feel like I was put on this planet to be the ambassador for snakes. Like I connect on a personal level with my animals and I connect on a personal level with people. And there's not a lot of people in that position. There are people that are great with animals that part of the reason they're great with animals because they hate people, (laughs) you know, and then there's people that are great with people, but they also tend to be like kind of shallow and vain and conceited and they don't care about nature and mm-hmm. any of that kind of stuff right. and i i, I kind of am like this in-between thing where i can connect with a person i can connect with an animal and then i can kind of bring those two together and connect them in nature in a way they never saw before if you look at my logo it's it's reach out reptiles i'm reaching out and there's a bridge which i'm based in pittsburgh so it's like the, the sixth street bridge and there's a wildlife on this side and the city on this side and it's like we are that connection to get back to that to that side. But but the catalyst to jump, the specific thing. So I had this nagging feeling that I was born to do something and I was just basically avoiding it because I was a coward. Because it's scary to go into business for yourself. Right. right? You don't have the boss to blame anymore for stuff. Um, so I had that nagging feeling that I was a coward and that I obviously have the ability to do this. I should do it, right? Um, but, but the, the actual catalyst was I said, okay, for the first quarter of, of 2017, I decided to see if I could match my regular industrial, you know, salary with what I was doing with reptiles on the side. And it, you know, granted I was working 60 hours a week or whatever at my company and what, maybe 10 with reptiles. So if 10 hours a week with reptiles could make me as much money as my real job for one quarter, I would make the jump. And I did it. I focused on it a little bit in my free time and I matched my income for that three months, first three months of 2017. How did you change gears on your efforts in that time to make more money than you had previously? I just, I just focused on sales. I just, I had all the animals. I had a lot of breeders. I had all the connections. So I basically said, I'm going to produce animals that are marketable and sell them. However, and I didn't have the time to like launch uh, a huge marketing thing. So I relied on backdoor ways by like wholesaling things or, or doing consignment deals or breeding loans and whatever kind of flexible thing I had to do to convert babies to cash you know, and, and I did it and I made a lot of money. But the funny thing is a lot of the babies that I sold during that time, I've now watched pass between three and four owners hands. And I, I hate that, you know, cause those animals are not getting good treatment. So, um, what's cool about working for myself now, just as a side note is the ability to connect with the final customer and really develop a sense of appreciation for the animal to make sure that that animal goes into a good home. But I, I did that in the four, first quarter of last year. And then the second quarter of last year, I, I did all the preparations in leaving my company, making sure that they were taken care of in my absence and also setting things up to hit the hit the round running. Um, and so I did leave my last company June 1st of last year. And so we're coming up on one year 
Uh, like I said, Reach Out Reptiles has been around since 2015. I've been around forever. But um, me working exclusively with dwarfs and super dwarfs is coming up on one year in June. So, so I mean, but this was a very calculated change. I mean, for other people, just as a reference, he didn't he didn't buy like two twenty thousand dollar animals and expect them to breed one year and then he would be good. Like you actually did numbers and sat down and sat yeah, down. I've been building towards it. I did all my investing back in like two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen, um, and I've been raising the animals and 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 some of them were bought as sub adults and things. I've been getting them dialed in and online and breeding and I was already breeding and selling and all that kind of stuff before I made the jump. And now so. you do a lot of unique things to other people that makes your business different. So um, I just want to kind of talk about a few of those things, whether it be, I mean, obviously you're big on YouTube, but also your presence at shows. So I guess start with the YouTube and kind of what is your goal with your YouTube channel? That's a very good question. Um, I, you know, going into it first thing is i think sometimes when they hear someone talk about that they have a youtube channel it makes people feel like they have to have a youtube channel so like one thing i should probably have but i don't is instagram i think instagram is a powerful tool and i don't use it right now um but but the the uh reason i'm saying that is do what whatever you're doing do it well before you try to do a million things do one thing well you know and so for me, I started with YouTube and my goal with my YouTube channel is, is kind of multifaceted. I mean, the first one is to have a, a relatively quick, easy way to have exposure for the information and education about these animals that they deserve to see that a, that customers aren't getting ripped off because there's a lot of misrepresentation and less than scrupulous people selling things as quote unquote super dwarves when they're not. So to kind of educate the people to empower them and then also be to educate people about how the, the care aspect of the animals so that they can be successful and their animals can be happy. Um, so that's, that's one purpose. The second purpose is I know being an old school guy buying stuff before online was like a thing. It's hard to buy animals online, you know, like if you're comfortable with it and you use Amazon.com all the time to buy everything or whatever, and hey, Alexa, buy me some more toilet paper or whatever. Yeah, it might be easier for you, but yeah, but, but I mean, a live animal is kind of a different thing. And when you're buying from somebody that you don't know online, I mean, we've all heard horror stories about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And how, how can you get to know this person or know that the animal is being accurately represented? I talked to two people on the phone today that got animals that were misrepresented. Mm-hmm. One that supposedly was a super dwarf and it wasn't. One that they bought as a female, but it's a male. Um, and that stuff happens every day when people try to cut corners or do this or do that or buy from whoever and... And so um, with my YouTube channel, it's a place where, and this has worked out very well, um, if you go to Reach Out Reptiles YouTube channel, you can watch it and get to know me as a person. And this show, actually, Joe, right now, I got to thank you for this because nobody asks me about what I do or what my background was or any of that. Nobody cares. They want to know about the snakes. So this show is literally the only time the spotlight has actually been on me. Every time you go to a, a YouTube video or something, you watch one of my YouTube videos, it's like, 
how to how to set up your caging for your superdwarf for for the maximum enjoyment of your animal you know how to feed them what's a correct feed schedule to make sure that you're not starving them or that they're not obese you know how to breed them how to incubate eggs for the greatest success um I, I just try to give different tips and stuff like that. Um, but the the goal behind all of it is that I'm the person there. I'm talking. You can see me. Um, and you can get to know me without knowing who I am so that you can do all the research on your animal. You can do all the research and background history on me and feel comfortable about the animals because you've seen them in video. You've seen them in pictures on my Facebook. You, you've seen me. You've heard me talk. You know what I'm all about. You've you, you know my message and, and my motivations on things. And, and you're able to determine whether or not I am going to be the right fit for you as somebody that you're going to – most of these animals are like investment-level animals. you know. But even if they're a pet and it's a super dwarf, obviously you have very specific things that you're looking for because you, you want a retic, but you don't want something that's going to get big. Right. So what a heartbreak it would be to buy a baby animal only to fall in love with it and have it outgrow what you're capable of keeping. You know, so, you know, the idea is, is this somebody we can trust? And with my YouTube channel, I try to um, just be myself and be authentic on there so that people can can get to know who I am and decide if I would be the right person that they want to support with their money. Because you are, like uh, Eric was saying, you, you vote with your dollar when you buy these things. If you're buying from somebody that's like, you know, quickly flipping junk on Craigslist and saying whatever it takes to get to make the sale, you're supporting that part of the industry and that part of the industry will grow with every purchase you make. Um, But if you support people that are like, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to make a go with this in my basement with my family and really do right by the animals and the people, you support people in the industry by buying animals from them and i think uh youtube is so unique in breaking down that wall in getting you into that person's life and kind of allowing you to show who you are what the animals are and all that you know something that's very unique to this platform and our technology yeah i I absolutely agree it's like here's a window to my life and uh the scary thing about going on youtube is it makes you very vulnerable like we were talking later, like Brian Barczyk is a great example of a big time reptile YouTuber who is extremely valuable, uh, uh, vulnerable on YouTube. And you can like the guy or hate the guy or say what you want about him, but uh, he's really putting himself out there, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and that takes guts. That takes guts. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. You have to have high levels of confidence and 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 have something at your core that you know who you are because people are going to just slam you with stuff and try to tell you who you are. I get all kinds of comments from different people that don't know me about how be being irresponsible or you know things like that. I mean my buddy Brian Cusco, I think you guys have had him on before. Uh had somebody tell him that his children should be taken away from him one yeah. time because he has a vlog where he includes his family and they disagreed about parenting or whatever and mm. that's not an easy thing to hear, you know, even if it is from some, you know, you the only way to think of it is not nah, as some moron online or whatever, but um, but that's not easy to do. You yeah, know? we struggle. I mean, I personally struggle with that as far as people commenting and saying things. And it's also to this point where I always want to value what someone's saying and try to see it from their perspective. And at the same time, you know, filter it because it's like, 
Um, I don't want to get too confident and then be like, I'm 20 years behind on my husbandry and stuff that's going in reptiles. And then I don't want to be too vulnerable that I don't put out YouTube videos anymore. So it's you're like, right. How the hell do I find that middle ground in there? And if you can find somebody that handles that balance well, let me know who they are because I want to <laughs> shake their hand. You know, they might I mean, that is really, that is really, really tough. Yeah. Um, that is, that is definitely tough. But I, but I think if we don't make ourselves vulnerable and available to the world, then we miss out on the connection. Absolutely. And for me, that's what life is all about. It's, it's about connecting with the animals, about connecting with the people and, and having those kinds of experiences, you know? Well, Garrett, I want to thank you for Stop. connecting was, with us. That was going to be a good transition. Yeah, mine was going to be one, okay, too. Go. I wanted Listen. to say it. That's what's giving you the uh. finger signal. She'll hit me. I don't know if you can see, but she no, hits me sometimes. You can't see. That's why it's a secret thing. I give oh, you the sorry. two fingers on your <laughs> Secret you no longer. Something. Yeah. If you don't okay. know, now you know. What's up? Well, I had one question, and then I was going to do... You talking to the mic, or... Fuck you. Oh, Jesus. Um, I had one question, and then I was going to end it. <laughs> okay, okay, well, okay. Well, actually, reverse. Go for it. But okay. speaking of connecting, like, like, like he started, I feel like in this podcast, probably more than any other one, like, we really got to know you. And clearly it affected me in a, in a good way. No, in like Sorry a really, about that. No, in a really good <laughs> no, way. No, it was like, amazing. It was, it was a good way. Like, yeah. I haven't, my soul hasn't <laughs> been affected in a podcast yet. And it's the whole time I was thinking, you know, we started this to learn more about snakes and to, at least for me to educate myself, because obviously I don't know shit, and like you to just kind of network and stuff but it's it's great that even though that's what we started it as that we can have conversations like this that really like get down to the deep like life shit um yeah i loved it i i really appreciate it thank you guys very much for having me on i i very much enjoyed it it was great and it's good that we can touch people in that way Right. Um, and it site. doesn't always have to be how can we breed, what temperature do we keep things right, at? Right, right. Yeah. Like we have, you know, we have podcasts for that too, which are also equally, you know, they're great. Like I like learning more about how to keep different things, but it's also great to talk, you know, talk life shit. So thank you, Eric and Owen, for taking all the other things out <laughs> and for us having to go deep. They answered. They they asked all the what and how questions, and you guys really got in a little bit more into the why. Yeah. Which I think is a question that people don't ask themselves enough when they get it. Why? You know, why do I want to do this? And that's that yeah. might be the most important one. And I'm leaving it with a new outlook on how I approach those people who comment us or message us. I'm like, oh, God, you suck. But, like, I need to not say that. Like, I, like, I liked your comment that, you know, no matter what experience someone has had on this earth, it's it's not mine. I can always learn from someone else's. And I think that's a great thing to take from this podcast. Also, if you're a kid who's a teenager and you want to tell your parents you're going to sleep at your friend's house for the weekend, you can go meet Jorge in Mexico. Like, that's also <laughs> something great to take from this podcast. I, I, should, I should put the disclaimer in there that I do not recommend trying to walk a mile in my shoes. It might be. But, like, yeah. the... the 
unique situations make you such a unique human being. It's like your own human experience has shaped you, you know, into such a unique person. And everyone has their own experiences. Yours happen to be super extreme, though. Right. And it's like, yeah, but you know what? But everybody, everybody does have that. And I, I think it's our inhibitions that stop us from becoming who we're capable of. So I would just encourage you guys and everybody listening to to figure out like how far can I push this and see who I really am and what I really am capable of because you know the world needs you. The world needs people exactly like you and I'm talking to everybody and that's the <laughs> coolest thing. You know, is just be the real you, you know? Um and that's that's what it's all about. The world needs Joes and Melissas and everything that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's been a treat being on with you guys. Awesome. I appreciate it. And the last thing I wanted to say is I don't know if you know, but we are moving to Philly in two months. We get to meet you. We'll be on opposite corners of a giant state. Yeah, but but we'll be in the same state. (laughs) Yeah, it's still like six hours away. But I'll tell you what, I'll meet you in the middle sometime and we'll have those beers. I won't bring any red wine. Oh, no. And uh, we'll have beers and we'll talk snake and, and I'll give you guys a turn to talk. Yeah, our story will not be half as interesting. But... Uh, I don't. I disagree. I learned. I learned so much from everybody that I talked to. So, so is yeah. there anything you want to get out there? Um, people can find you. All that good stuff. Facebook and YouTube. Reach out reptiles on YouTube. On Facebook, it's just Garrett Hartle. That's it. And, you know, my, my Facebook page is mostly a personal page, but there's a lot of reptile stuff on there too. Uh, the YouTube thing is, is for the reptiles. So is your website yeah, reach out reptiles.com reach out reptiles.com. Yeah. It'll, it'll get some fun stuff on there, but you know, there's nothing really like it's, it's not, uh, it, it kind of tells you who I am, but if you talk to me for 10 minutes, you'll figure that out. Anyway, if you're so. listening right now and you don't know who Garrett is Go right back now, then yeah, if, you, if you listen to this, if you listen to this show, you don't need to go to reach out. Right <laughs> you got to figure it out. So, yeah. Well, well great, uh, everyone. Thanks for listening. Um, obviously you can find us at port city pythons on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, port city pythons.com for shirts and Amazon links. And yes. All that good stuff. Uh, the port city pythons at gmail.com. If you want to drop us a line old school or you can message us on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. I think that's everything. That's it, man. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm guys. thinking if there's we'll a, if there's you. any events, but there's we don't have yeah, now that have Carpet Fest anymore. is gone. Well, there's we have no the events Northeast Carpet Fest that we won't be going to, but we should still pl- plug it. June not, 9th. There you go. June 9th. I'll be there. I'll be there. June 9th at me. Eric's house. Uh, Northeast Carpet Fest. We are literally so butthurt that we're not going we're we're moving a month after that not even uh, we're moving like three weeks after we're moving july 1st like literally right yeah it sucks it's sucks. lame we're lame very sad <laughs> well you guys thank um, you guys so much for listening you. yes garrett <laughs> thank you for being on thank you guys <laughs>